There we go. Let's find my dry erase marker, what's left of it. <coughs> Clear the throat. August the 9th, 2020, lecture discussion number 112 on the book of Joel Daniel, Revelation Ecclesiastes. As much as everyone is and was wildly enthusiastic about immunology and sepsis and microbiology and all that went with that, etc., etc., which ultimately resolves into a theological implication, or the theological implications, I should say, of the immune defense and its uh, reconciliation with its omniscience of God. That's where all of that was headed, in case you were wondering. It is uh, probably best, uh, in spite of how much fun that was, to pause for a short respite, a, a parenthesis, if you will, and allow for the vast Internet audience, that's you folks, hi folks, uh, to be lulled into defensive, defenselessness. So I'm going to pretend to go elsewhere today, maybe sort of. The pretense is not that at a very high level, as you'll find out. Okay, the omniscience and timelessness of the Lord God of creation has been and remains extremely difficult for a large swath of theologians to harmonize with the existence of created beings. It's been a issue for hundreds, if not thousands of years, but certainly hundreds. And there's a tendency in the uh, large swath of theologians uh, to ignore the delicacy of balance. And, and for some reason, they allow themselves to surrender in this, what they consider a paradox. Um, and they assign to God the origin of evil. That's what happens. God is evil, ultimately. And that's a blasphemy or a heretic position. And it's not true. And it is also, of course, the hypothesis of Satan in Genesis 3-4. So, today is a lot about Genesis 3-4. That's why I bring this up. Why can't you ever get out of Genesis, you ask? Well, because I can never get out of Genesis. It's just how it is. This is where we see evidence of the Ezekiel 28 16, Genesis 3-4, I should say again. This is where we see Genesis 3-4 mingle, for lack of a better word, with Ezekiel 28-16 and Matthew 4 and Luke 4 and Mark 1. The temptation is not a temptation. He can't be tempted. He's omniscient God. It's the testing of Christ for his deity. Do you need something, young lady? You're just moving around. Okay. Do you have the free will and authority to move around as you please? Okay, well, that's, that's all true, actually. So let's just verify. But uh, again, let me repeat. Genesis 3-4 is Ezekiel 28-16 demonstrated for humanity. The angelic realm saw 28-16, the abundance of your traffic. That is the spreading of Satan's lie, of course. And uh, we see it again presented to Christ in front of those very angels at one more time. Or often, how many times he has used that particular... Uh, a system of his in front of the angelic host is no way to know, but that's Matthew 4 and Luke 4 and Mark 1. And usually what I'm talking about is, is the free will existence question. Again, posed as a, as a conundrum, as unsolvable, um, as uh, incongruent, as uh, contradictory, when, as if God's omniscience is, 
is incompatible with free will, which it is not incompatible with free will and never will be. A little pun there. But all are true uh, in the sense that his omniscience is compatible with free will. That's it, There is... Both of those elements are correct. I have God's omniscience and I have compatibility with free will. And again, it's a delicate balance. And I understand that it's difficult. I really do for some people. I wish it wasn't. And it's something I would expect. I did it. I said. So now I might as well say, by the way, something I would expect Because the entirety of of the Bible, when I look around and see the creation and I look around and see myself, immunology, autonomic nervous system, cardiopulmonary system, venous system, systemic circulatory system, cardiac or coronary uh, circulatory system, the operation of the atriums and the ventricles, all of this stuff, there's a delicate balance in all of it. His creation testifies of delicacy. And and so does his scripture. You would expect it, right? Whoever made me wrote the Bible. It's pretty obvious and created all things. So do not be surprised to see delicacy. Uh, Just to say a few things about that. The Elohim, the triunity of God, seems to be difficult for people. Once again, it should not be. And most often this balance that I just referred to, this, this, this nice edge, for lack of a better term, this irreducibility, it's fine tuning. All of the universe is finely tuned. If gravity were stronger than it was, there'd be no life. If the ice did not... Uh, lose density as it froze, there would be no life. If I mean, there's this tremendous, incredible perfection in the sense of irreducibility. And my point, yay, a point, page two, sentence two. What I'm trying to do with these recent lectures is to demonstrate the revelation of an infinite intelligence that is found within the human body at the microscopic level. That's what I have been trying to do now for months. There is no possibility. It is absurd to think that this is not something that is the result of an incredible intellect. And obviously, I am drawn to histiopathologic evaluations, if you wish to think of it this way, postmortems. And I, what kind of postmortems do you think I read about all the time? Because I'm weird. I was weird for a while before I came to Cliffside. From the womb, obviously. But I'm interested in the elderly, the formerly large-framed, or what I used to call big-boned, okay, fat guys. I'm interested in what's happening to my guys. Fat guys with heart conditions. Histiopathologic refers to damaged heart muscle tissue. And I'm noticing the high percentage of acute myocarditis in my age group from those who have succumbed to this 2019 coronavirus. Myocarditis is inflammation. And we've talked about inflammation. Now, inflammation, of course, causes expression of uh, different uh, proteins and enzymes. And the COVID-19 is able to attach to those. So if I have, if my, if I have myocarditis and I have had it, when I was younger, Lori will remember, I had inflammation of the pericardium. 
So I have had all these kinds of things for quite some time. I've never been able to sleep well. I always believed that I was having some kind of odd nightmare where I was losing my breath, being suffocated. It's gone on for 30 years, hasn't it, dear? It's not happening as much anymore because uh, uh, I've had this surgery, this cryogenic uh, scarring of the pulmonary veins. Uh, catheter ablation, if you have radio frequency and, and the cryogenic generation too. So that has stopped this, these aberrant signals from coming into my heart so far as has my diet, I hope. But at least the combination of both was my plan. In any event, I want to see what's happening with myocarditis with this inflammation to the myocardium. I know that it will transition to the lungs. Uh, to the heart and, and therefore, or transition, I'm sorry, from the lungs to the heart. It'll invade the heart cells. It'll kill those cells. That's what it does. It kills heart cells. Heart muscle does not recover if it's infected. And that's the same as the nervous tissue or the spinal cord. Brain and heart. What you're seeing is brain and heart locked together once again. So heart cells don't recover if they're infected or if the blood oxygen is reduced, that's called myocardial ischemia. Oxygen blockage is, a, is a, another condition that's caused by clots. When you have oxygen blockage by any means, whether it is myocardial ischemia or whether or not it is a clot-based system, a coronary artery that has got a uh, blockage in it, uh, you're going to feel that as lactic acid pain in the chest. And that's what your chest pain is, acute chest pain. And when the myocardial cells are killed by this virus, and what it does, of course, is it gets into the cells through the ACE2 receptors, through the CD147, cluster of differentiation 147, then what it does is it bursts out of the heart cell and troponin is released. The troponin is something that I've had many tests for to find out if I've had uh, myocardial infarction. Do I have dead heart cells? Let me repeat. If you have dead heart cells, they stay dead. If you have dead brain cells, they stay dead. They don't rejuvenate. They don't regenerate. That's fascinating. But anyway, troponin is released uh, when you have dead heart cells, and that's very detectable. I know that. Like I said, that's a chemistry element in the sense that it's figured out chemically. And the troponin can only get out of a heart cell when it dies, and so that's how they can tell. And I passed every one of those tests, didn't I, dear? Yes, I did. To sum this up, the virus destroys the lungs and the heart. I would predict that by reading the Bible. Because the pulmonary structure and the cardiovascular system, or if you wish to think of it as cardiopulmonary, they are locked, they're intrinsic, they're harmonized, they are fine-tuned, they are balanced, uh, and they're inseparable. Uh, there's a oneness to them. Lungs, breath and blood. Where am I going to find breath and blood? The breath of the spirit of life and the life is in the blood. That's Genesis 2, 7, 7, 22. I guess I could put it on the board. Genesis 2, 7. So critical. 7, 22. So critical. Leviticus 17, 11 through 14. The life is in the blood, the breath of the spirit of life. They're locked together just as the heart and the lungs are. 
Uh, and that's, I don't find it surprising at all. I would, again, I know it's got to be, be there. I would not find surprising also that the myocardial tissue and the neurological tissue do not recover from blood and oxygen deprivation because the heart is electrified and the, and the brain is electrified. So for me, this is obvious. And as much as I'm tempted and as much as I yield to these kinds of subjects for today, let's just put the heart and the brain and the lungs into a threefold association for today. Where am I headed with that? You can consider the most obvious of the obvious questions where I'm headed, which is Genesis 1.26. Genesis oops, 3.22. That's where I'm headed. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Always people should say, why did he do that and how did he do it? Well, you're beginning, if you look at the human body, you can begin to figure out how and why he did it. He's teaching us something about himself by how he designed us. That's what he does. You can then consider the most obvious of the obvious questions. Sometime later. Because there's more of them, but not today. The origins, for example, of pathogens and the original purpose of the immune defense, that's going to be necessary. I've introduced that a couple of lectures back. We've got to weigh all of that. But not today. As much fun as it would be, and I still went to it, didn't I? I pretended I wasn't going to do it. I did it anyway because I am ruthless and relentless. Or relentless and ruthless. I don't remember where Ruth fits in all of that. Okay, Bill the Cow. Husband of Crazy Becky called the other day. They are now hiding in an undisclosed location, having left Alaska just barely ahead of the municipal and state authorities. They just hardly made it. And though there's the posted reward is, is substantial, I will not reveal that they fled to Kentucky. No possibility you'll find them in Kentucky, officer. Where's my money? Anyway, Bill was thinking about Psalm 10. So let's put that up there. And suggested that it was a Luke 17 that it transitioned into and actually led to whoops, Luke 17 which I absolutely agreed with him on. I think that was completely right. Uh, and then, of course, if it's at Luke 17, if it's a complement to Luke 17, then it's a complement to Genesis 6. If it's a complement to Genesis 6, it's a complement to Genesis 19, Genesis 18, 20, Genesis 13, 13, and Judges 19, which you all know about. We've done that those subjects more and more and more. And it, in other words, it, it's the signs of Noah and Lot, Luke 17. So Bill and I started meandering through the Hebrew betrothal ceremony and the feast days as they apply to the abduction of the bride because we share the opinion that the world that we are living in, and anyone with an eye can see, anyone that can watch anything or hear anything can see that the world is rapidly and irreversibly heading into corruption. And thus the time of removal of the salt of the earth, the abduction of the bride from up with the bridegroom, the bridegroom comes to abduct his bride, the salt and the light of the earth. That's on the threshold. I think that is clear. 
People make fun of me. They think that this is my way of getting out of uh, being poor in retirement. Which it is. Because I have planned badly. Really badly. I might have to keep doing this job till I'm what? 67. Oh, wait. <laughs> if the bridegroom does tarry, I know that it's on the threshold, but if he does take more time, which he absolutely can and probably should because he waits for every living being that he has thought of. And, I, and there are billions and billions, if not trillions. So if the bridegroom tarries, then Ezekiel 38 shows up. And Bill and I began to talk about that as well. That's, again, the confederacy that comes for Israel, uh, the confederacy of countries that decide that they're going to kill Israel. And maybe we'll get to see that, which would be extraordinary if we witness that. That's something, obviously, for us to watch for as the church. And also, while you're doing that, pay attention to what I think is probably the central person involved in that at this particular time. Now, that could change. But right now, I believe it is the nation of Turkey and Erdogan. Because, you see, they haven't yet experienced the vengeance of the Lord God of creation. The young Turks... And I'm still amazed that there's a group in this country that call themselves the Young Turks. They perpetrated an incredible evil genocide of the Armenians. Many Armenian Christians were slaughtered in the early 1900s. And God says this, to me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I shall repay. Deuteronomy 32:35, Romans 12:19. Psalms 94.1. So I'm expecting God to show his face, his fury against the Tubal. You have Rosh, Meshash, and Tubal of Ezekiel 38.18 through 39.9. And he describes what he will do, his recompense, his repayment for what they are doing or what they will do or try to do. Rosh, Meshash, and Turkey or Tubal will be burned given to the birds of prey, eaten by the birds. That's what he will do. And again, Tubold is turkey. Hrgdavan is boasting, he's rattling, he is completely unaware of his fate. The chances that Hrgdavan has read Ezekiel 38 and 39 is nil. I would advise it. I doubt he wants my advice. You all also might remember in a recent lecture... The 120 years of grace. Genesis 6. You're saying to yourself, is, did you and Bill the cow actually talk about all of this in less than an hour? No, the answer was not less than an hour. But yes, we did talk about that. This is 120 years of grace or warning that preceded the flood, the deluge of Noah, Genesis 6.3. And for the numerologists among us that want to focus on the 120, and I don't blame you, 120 is very important in the Bible. Uh, uh, Twelve is always attached to what? I'm sorry. Twelve is always attached to five. And so pay attention to those kinds of things. There is obviously numerology in the Bible. The number 12 carries perfect judgment in it. That's what it, (coughs) that's the meaning of it. 
And again, grace number five is always attached to perfect judgment. You see that in the tribulation. Though there is judgment, there is recompense, there is repayment. At the same time, there is salvation, there is grace. So you see perfect judgment and you see grace, a warning. There are 12 patriarchs from Seth to Noah. There are 12 patriarchs from Shem to Jacob. There are 12 sons of Israel. Though, what do we know about that? There's, we know there is 13. But every time you see the sons of Israel, the tribes of Israel, how many are there? There's always 12. They leave out. We know they leave out Levi. Did you get that? Mostly. They don't always leave out Levi. But there's always only 12, even though we know there's 13. That's kind of a mystery. The meaning of that is, the meanings of it is elusive. We're going to have to deal with that. I think it's fun. It's numerology. It's Ethelbert W. Bullinger. In case you think I thought of it. There were 12 judges, sometimes called 12 saviors. Samson being the final. Othniel being the first. The pattern of Genesis 6-3, the 120-year warning and grace given to the wicked ones. He gave them 120 years before he finally said enough. So I have the wicked ones of the antediluvian earth, the pre-flood earth. And I believe that that 120 years of warning and grace, as you know, I did it a few months ago, maybe a month ago. In my opinion, corresponds to a 120-year period that has happening probably right now, I believe, that are given to the wicked ones prior to the tribulation. So there is a relationship between the noatic flood and the tribulation of Revelation. I think that is obvious. It is a whole world issue, right? The flood and the tribulation obviously linked. And of course, if you want to do it this way, 12 times 10 is what? Go ahead, do it for me. 12 times 10. Yes, you can do it as 120. 5 times 10 is what? That's right. Oops, 5 times 10 is 50. 120 times 50 is 6,000. Probably a coincidence. Being able to derive the number of years from Genesis 2-7 is first knowing Genesis 2-7, but being able to figure out how many years have expired since Genesis 2-7 is a terrific ability, a valuable skill, one that I don't possess, but I think... And it's my opinion that we are somewhere around 5970 to 5990. I've made the case for 5986 recently, would be today. If we are 5986 years from Genesis 2 7, if this is correct, yeah, but if it is correct, um, then wow, baby. Thing going to be heating up, man. And that's a good thing. Remember, grace always comes with tribulation, with judgment. So many, many people will see and be saved and hear and be saved. And if I'm right, instability is going to increase. It will get worse before it gets much worse. Which is why I notice things like pandemics and world wars and earthquakes and, and anything that is causing instability, economic instability, 
I asked, I think I did it last week. I don't remember because I don't write everything down that I say. This is pretty much all of these words that I have here are pretty much just suggestions. Sometimes I try to stay with the plan, but I get bored with it. I go, who wrote this nonsense? I'm going to go someplace else. It's more interesting to me. Let's go to math. Okay. Said nobody ever. I want to know how long will this worldwide disease last? I hear all the time, we'll get through this. Well, your definition of through when you say that better be pretty encompassing. There are estimates now that there will be at least 300,000 fatalities in the United States. That's nowhere near the fatality level of the Spanish influenza of the 1917-1919 period. That apparently killed at least 50 million people in the world, if not 100 million. And the United States suffered almost 700,000 deaths in one month. Now, again, medical science, everyone wants to say science will save us. I don't believe science will save anybody. I know that's not possible. There's only one person who will save anyone ever. Science will delay something. Again, good health is only the slowest possible rate at which you die. Now, who's going to save you from death? It isn't science. They may be able to put in an attenuation. So I'm looking at this pandemic thinking it could go on for years. It did before. Now, when did the 120 years start? Again, did it start on the world war? I would submit that that's highly likely that it started at the world war, the first world war in the history of mankind. And that war, as you know, lasted from 1914 to 19th. Uh, 45. So I believe that was a long war. The world was at war under tension from 19, just say 15 to 1945, so you can get a nice, comfortable 30 year period. So that's a long time. How long will this pandemic go on for? What if it goes on for 10 years? What will that do? That'll create tremendous instability. Again, with recompense comes grace. Ecclesiastes 12, 6 and 7. 12, 1. Remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed. So in all of that discussion, Bill finally gets to the subject, which is Psalm 10. And he... Uh, uh, he says he mentions Psalm ten eight, and in my agedness, as he as he recited it to me, he wasn't actually positive where it was, but I knew it was in Proverbs. Well, I was wrong. Uh, I thought it was in Proverbs. I thought it was Proverbs six, and I was kind of right about that. In my defense. I wasn't precise, but I nonetheless got it very narrow because Psalm 10 and Proverbs 6 are right side by side. They are the same subject. So these guys belong together, and it is clear that they do when you read them both side by side. Proverbs 10 and Proverbs 6 build upon each other. Both are the lie of Satan, the lie, the evil. They are antichrist passages. 
And with that said, Psalm 10 also raises a question that Christ answers in Matthew 20. I don't have time to put this on the board. But he raises questions in Matthew 20. That's from last week. Matthew 21, 33 through 46. What's that? That's the landowner, the vineyard owner, that parable. Mark 10, 13 through 14. Mark 12, 1 through 11. Luke 29 through 18. Those are places that Proverbs 6 and Psalm 10 uh, collide. And something that we considered again in lecture number 110. What am I today? I'm 112. So two lectures ago, I did those and I brought up all that question. Uh, the Christ seen the fig tree from afar. Afar. Why did he see it from afar? Why didn't he walk right up to it? But he wants to see it from afar. The fig tree. He curses it. The landowner going into a far country. Mark 11, 12 through 13. Matthew 21, 33. In lecture 110, I stated that Mark 11:12 through 16 had the order of the fig tree, in other words, and the cleansing of the temple. So he cursed the fig tree and then he cleansed the temple. And that is exactly as Mark 11:12 through 16 says. So I did it right. Sometimes I'm confused. But um, Matthew 12, or I'm sorry, Matthew 21 order, and I might have called it Matthew 22. I, somebody, who called me, who told me that? I, did, I call it Matthew 22. If I call it Matthew 22 instead of Matthew 21, it's probably Terry's fault. So just keep that in mind. I would blame Dave, but that's redundant because if it's Terry's fault, then obviously it's Dave's fault if he exists. So to having to say both is just superfluous. Matthew 21's order is not the same as the fig tree cursing and the temple cleansing. It's the temple cleansing and the fig tree cursing. Does that make any sense? There's a reversing, or so it seems. Do you think there's a reversing? Did Mark get it right, or did Matthew get it right? What's the answer? Can you answer that? The answer is yes. They both got it right. So how do I put those together, reconcile them? Anyway. I think that was an apricot remnant. That's what they tell you to play the trumpet, spit rice. I've never figured that out until very recently. Bobby Shoe, spit rice, Maynard Ferguson. It's taken me years to figure out what they meant by that. I just kind of did it. I demonstrated, but it was an apricot, spit apricot piece. Why did we bring that up? No one knows. Obviously, the cursing of the fig tree leaves. Notice how I said that. The cursing of the fig tree leaves. He curses the entire fig tree and the leaves fall off and there is no fruit. So I have the cursing of the fig tree leaves. Does that sound familiar? Do we go back to Genesis 3? And the cleansing of the body that is a temple. 1 Corinthians 6.19 Don't you know that your body is like the tabernacle of, the, of Moses, it says in 1 Corinthians 6.19. And the temple of Nehemiah and Ezra and Solomon. I've added a few things there, but you get the point. Yea, a point that you got. It's a rhetorical question it assumes that no you have no idea that your body is the temple of Solomon or the temple of Nehemiah Ezra or the tabernacle 
of Moses. You don't know it at all. Few understand the connection between Genesis 1.26 and 2.7. 1.26, again, in the image of God. Few understand man in the image of God and the tabernacle of Moses and the house of the Lord, the temple of God, the house of prayer. All of those refer to the temple, the tabernacle. Moses brought the tent. Out of the tent came the tabernacle. I'm sorry, came the temple of Solomon. The, the design is the same. And somehow, more apricots than I should have eaten today. They're going to be all over the floor, apparently. But you have to know. Well, you don't have to know. You should know. Genesis 1, 26, 3, 22 is why your body, my body, our body, has this relationship to the temple of God. And we should expect that Jesus God, Jesus Christ, when he removed and cursed fig tree leaves. Now, that's two different verses, isn't it? That's 321 of Genesis and it's Matthew 2112. When he removes and curses the fig tree. No, I'm sorry. It's uh, cleansing the temple is Matthew 2112, Mark 1115, Luke 1944. Through 46. Now, I can't keep all of that straight, and I don't expect you to keep it all straight either, but at least know. He curses the fig leaves, fig tree, and then he cleanses the body. Oh, wait, the temple that is the body. No, the body is the temple. Oh, they're the same. And somehow they speak back to Genesis 1:26, the image of God. Look, let us, let us, the Elohim, make man in our image. Look, the man has become like one of us, one of the us, the triune Godhead. Romans 5, 14. Eventually, this unending thread or string that we're pulling on leads to the stone that is a symbol of Christ. But all of that that I gave you is interwoven. The parable of the vineyard owner, the landowner, resolves into the stone which the builders rejected. Whomever falls on the stone will be broken, Jesus Christ says. But on whomever the stone falls, it will grind him to powder. Luke 20, 18, Matthew 21, 33 through 46. Okay. Whomever the stone falls, on whomever the stone falls, it will grind him to powder. Obviously, the stone is Christ. And Matthew 21, Mark 12, Luke 20, three that are one. Can't emphasize that enough. Now, this order of the fig tree and the cleansing, which came first, the fig tree or the cleansing or the cleansing and then the fig tree? And the answer is what? Yes. How can they both come first? They seem to be opposites and they're not opposites. What are they? They're complements. So what do I do when I have compliments? I add them together. It would seem then that Matthew 21, 12 through 22, added to Mark 11, 12 through 16, what have we got? Either we got two fig trees, or he did it twice. So I would have, if I had two fig trees, then I would have two sets of fig tree leaves, wouldn't I? That he would have to remove. Genesis 3.21. You can come up with your own solution. We'll do more of that next week, I hope. Anyway. I said anyway a couple of times already. Oops, I just did it right there. I'm going to need an anyway box. Because anyway seems to be my default transition method. So, 
we should read Psalm 10 and Proverbs 6. We won't read all of Proverbs 6, but uh, we at least should read Psalm 10. So let's do that. I think it, you will find it unbelievable. I know you will. It is unbelievable. And see if we can find out what the supposed highly trained religious professional, that would be me. Let's see uh, what he's trying to accomplish, because I am trying to accomplish something unbeknownst to everybody who listens to me. (coughs) Excuse me. Why do you stand afar off? Where am I? That's right. I'm in the landowner vineyard. Owner. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride. Oh, my goodness. That sounds like Isaiah 14. Ezekiel 28, the wicked in his pride, the wicked, that's a person. It's also persons. He has, the serpent has a brood of vipers, right? The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. So in other words, let the wicked be caught in the plots to which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire. Again, Isaiah 14. His blessings, he blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. The wicked in his proud countenance, Ezekiel 28:17, does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. His ways are always prospering. Your judgments are far above out of his sights. For all his enemies, he sneers at them. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. Who are we talking about? This is a person. It's also a group of people. I shall never be in adversity. In other words, he will never be in accountability. Where are we in the Bible? Genesis 3. I could actually walk over there easily now. Just had to prove that for somebody saying, well, he might be diminished mentally. I am diminished mentally. It's been that way since age 12, I think. Have to look that up. God is in none of his thoughts. In his heart, I'm sorry, his ways are always prospering. Your judgments are far above out of his sight. For all his enemies, he sneers at them. He has said in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall never be held accountable. His mouth is full of cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is trouble and iniquity. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the secret places, he murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws them into his net. So he crouches, he lies low, that the helpless may fall by his strength. Now, poor is likely the poor in spirit, not the poor in money. The Bible constantly says poor, and it means poor in heart or poor in spirit. He has said in his heart, God has forgotten. He hides his face. He will never see. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Do not forget the humble versus the proud. Why do the wicked renounce God? He has said in his heart, there will not require an account. There it is again. In other words, there is no hell. There is no judgment. 
None will ever go into the lake of fire. It is a ruse. But you have seen, for you observe trouble and grief, to repay it by your hand. The helpless commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evil man. That is Zechariah 11:17. Seek out his wickedness until you find none. In other words, exterminate the wicked ones. That's one of the purposes of the tribulation is to put an end to the wicked ones. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations have perished out of his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear. You do justice to the fatherless and to and the oppressed that the man of the earth may oppress no more. That's the Antichrist right there. So a lot of commentary. I read it all of it, didn't I? If that's a sentence, I have to because in Psalms there's no place to stop. Psalms 10. You can't stop. That's true of the whole of Scripture, but we pretend to stop in lots of passages. The Bible is actually what? One continuous sentence. And we break it up because most of the time we're idiots. But you should know that it's one continuous sentence, so that the paragraphing and the chapters and the, and the verses, uh, that has no significance. It is not inspired. It's just helpful. Why do you stand afar off, Lord? Again, that's the question answered in the parable of the landowner and the vineyard order, the fig tree seen from afar. That gets you to all of those things because, again, we have God standing afar off. It asks that incredible question. Why does God hide? Another, the greatest of all mysteries is the mystery of godliness, 1 Timothy 3:14 and 16. Through 16, the typology of the Ark of the Covenant is here, hidden underneath a covering of skins when it moves. I have Christ hid himself in humanity, hid himself as a baby. That's full, infinite God, and everyone thinks it's a baby. It is a baby, but it is full, infinite God. It's never, the baby was never not God. Christ is never not God. So why do you hide? Why do you stand afar off? Why do you hide? Psalm 10.1, why do you stand afar off, O Lord, is the same question as what? Yes, I see you. Why is there evil? People say all the time. By people, I mean people. They say all the time. Why does God allow evil? Well, here it is. Psalm 10.1. That's the question that's being asked there. Why are you afar off, O Lord? Why did you go to a far country? Why do you curse a victory from afar? Two critical, crucial questions that I, I wish for every Christian believer to answer them easily. Hopefully you Christian, Christian, hopefully you Cliffensteiners, as right now there's only four of us analog people. Um, but hopefully, hopefully you guys out there in the vast internet, ether, can fire away on those questions in Psalm 10, one, four days, hours. At least. Why does man have an immune system response? That's there. Where, do, why, why is, where is the immune system response question? Well, it's right there. Why do you hide in times of trouble? Why is there evil? Where do viruses come from? Why is there physical death? A return to dust. Genesis 2, 7. Ecclesiastes 12. Beating it and beating it and beating it. Why is God invisible? First, uh, I'm sorry, Colossians 1, 15 through 18. Why do we pray in secret, in spirit and in truth? Matthew 6, 5 through 13, John 4, 24. What is this secret thing? 
Because we pray in secret and Satan in secret places murders the innocent. Why is there a judgment to hell, a lake of fire? Notice that we're still in verse 1. Those are all verse, or Psalm 10, 1 questions. Psalm 10, 1 is incredible, and obviously it contains a wealth of information about Satan and the Antichrist, the lie, the evil, the wicked. Satan has a lie, his lie, and it's, it's, it's extraordinarily large. But it's also, a, the evil is a statement and a person, so they're both. There's a statement lie, if you will, a paragraph of lies, and there's also a person that is the lie and the wicked. And the evil, as there is with Christ, right? He is the truth and the good. So, um, Bill, the, Bill the cow, though, wanted me to go to 10, uh, 8 through 10. Let me read it again. In the secret places, he murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. In the secret place, he murders the innocent. That is where Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, the seven evil, detestable things now, is attaching here. Now, I'm not going to read all of Proverbs 6, but the of the seven, the third one, hands that shed innocent blood. God hates them. That's what he says. Now, he has a righteous hatred. We have a vile hatred. It's not the same. Proverbs 6, 12 through 19 is the Antichrist as well. You see the Antichrist and Satan all through Proverbs 6, 12 through 19. The wicked man, the wicked and evil man, Psalm 10, 15. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man is also in Proverbs 6. That man, of course, as I said, Zechariah eleven seventeen is the idle shepherd whose arm is withered and broken. Now there's also in Second King, 1 Kings. I have the unknown, unnamed prophet, and the arm of the king is withered there. So those are all together. And Bill rightfully applied Psalm 10, 8, as I hope you are also doing, in the secret places he murders the innocent to our time, to our day. This is a beautiful description of eugenics. Not beautiful, perfect. Description of the eugenics movement. The murderers of children. Children dismembered, their organs sold. Great evil. Millions and millions of them. At Mark 10, 19, the Lord God Almighty, He who made all things, connects Psalm 10, 1 to Psalm 139, 16 through, I'm sorry, 139, 13 through 16. Because that's talking about the, the woman's womb. We are made in secret, he says, fearfully and wonderfully made unique, absolute distinctively, distinctiveness, none alike. None of us are alike. And we are skillfully wrought in the womb of the mother in secret. It says down to the, the inside of the earth in most of your translations. But if you study that, you'll find out it's referring to the mother's womb that was in the previous verse. So, in secret places, he murders the innocent. That is the murdering in the mother's womb. How long will God wait? 
How long will he stay afar off? Why do the wicked say that there is no judgment? Why does Satan, the Antichrist, say that they will never have adversity? They will never be held accountable. There is no accountability. There is no condemnation. Has God forgotten? He says, has God forgotten? Does he not see? He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. Will he, God, demand recompense? Will he repay? Yes, he will repay. Why does he repay? What if he didn't repay? Well, there's your answer. He has to repay. Well, he doesn't have to. He will. The lie of Satan, Genesis 3, 4, Ezekiel 28, 16, asserts that God cannot repay. He won't repay. He won't remember. He cannot see and see all the evil. God, Satan declares God to be the source of evil. That's the classic uh, piece of the lie. He declares that God is evil and that God lies about our existence. That's Exodus 17, 1 through 7, Matthew 4, Luke 4. Satan proclaims will and existence are illusionary. Oh, wait, that sounds familiar. Who else says that? Well, Einstein said that. That statement is word for word what Genesis 3, 4 says. That Existence and will are an illusion. That is what is going on in Genesis 3-4. Genesis 3-4 is word for word what the evolutionists scream. They scream Genesis 3-4. They don't know it, but they do it. It is what the genocidal eugenicists preach. There is no, there's nothing past this life so we can destroy it as we wish. God is in none of their thoughts. Psalm 10.4. As you know, I spent way too much time on theological implications, be it the uh, cardiovascular, cardiopulmonary interface, which I really like. Again, the auto, autonomic system, nervous system, microscopic biology, microscopic physics, mathematics, language. That's the same thing. Mathematics is language. It's stuff, I know. It seems like stuff. But I'm drawn pretty much to everything that testifies of intelligence of consciousness, of the invisible, the unseen, which is why I have an affinity for gravitational phenomena. Isaac Newton is my favorite. He's my hero. You're not allowed to have heroes, but if I could have a hero, I would have Isaac Newton. Isaac Newton melded gravity with mathematics. He put them together, which for me makes Newton iconic. Um, if I were to be assigned authority of any kind, Isaac Newton posters would be prominent in every classroom. And then, and then once I got all of Newton in there, every time you walked into any classroom anywhere, college, university, community college, high school, elementary school, kindergarten, a nursery school, I would have Isaac Newton's and Solomon's pictures there. Because Solomon thought deeply about existence. Solomon married, married meaning and existence, purpose with existence. And Isaac Newton put mathematics with gravity. You see, mathematics is amazing. It's an abstract logic system. It's a concept. Mathematics is dependent on intelligence, on consciousness. It cannot, there is no possibility it exists without intelligence. And that makes it so special. Math is the non-physical, which is utilized to describe the physical creation. There has been a debate for centuries over these kinds of things, over whether hum mathematics is a human construction or a human discovery. And pretty much all agree that mathematics cannot exist. I, I can't find hardly anyone that will say otherwise to this. Mathematics cannot exist. It must 
be part of a conscious intelligence. It cannot cannot exist apart from consciousness and intelligence, which is why you will come across an often expressed realization or conclusion from both physicists and mathematicians, which is essentially consciousness is the key to everything. Max Planck said that at the bottom of all of the information that we have gathered. Consciousness is the key to everything. And this uh, quote, if again I was given problem, uh, pr- power, problems, I already have problems. If I was given power, I'd, I'd write it on every Isaac Newton and Solomon poster that I could post. And I'd plaster them everywhere, every wall, ceiling. Again, starting in the nursery, uh, child care facilities. How do we explain mathematics? Why does the physical reality have intrinsic mathematical patterns and structures? The physical reality can be predicted by mathematic formulations. Math is the language of the created universe, of the physical universe. However, math cannot do something, a bunch of somethings. One thing that it cannot predict is free will. It can't do it. It cannot It has no place with free will. What are the theological implications of the fact that mathematics cannot predict will? Obviously, free will is inseparable from existence. I've said that for many, many years, something I've relentlessly pounded for the entirety of my so-called supposed career. Eternity and existence are likewise conjoined. Eternity is infinity. Infinity cannot be realized by mathematics. It can't be quantified. Infinity is not computable. I can express it. I can even write it in a calculation. But it is not computable. What are the theological implications of will and consciousness and infinity not being subject to mathematics? The I am that I am, Exodus 3.14. That's the name that Jesus Christ says is his name. John 11, 25, 14, 6, 8, 12, 8, 24, 8, 58. So that's me. I am the 3.14. I am that I am. Says it all the time. Says it everywhere. I left out a whole bunch of them. Everywhere you see him say, I am capitalized both of them. God is infinite. He is proclaiming his infinity, Jesus is. Jesus Christ is infinite. He is without cause. He is self-sustaining. Whereas the creation is subject to... Yes, that's right, Isaac Newton. Okay, second law of thermodynamics. I believe that Newton... Uh, provided the foundation. In other words, God is immutable, cannot change, cannot be changed. He does not change, Malachi 3, 6, for I am the Lord God, I change not. In more other words, I need another box for that too, don't I? Because I say in other words a lot. Because I know I'm not making any sense. In more other words, God is outside of computation. What are the theological implications of God being outside of computation? I will give you a clue. That's right. Infinity. Recently, I've been focusing on Christ's insistence on resurrecting the body, all bodies. He is the resurrection. He is the resurrecting one. He's the only one that can resurrect. He's the only one that will resurrect. John 11:25. He will resurrect the body and he is insistent. He, he's demanding that he will. He's promising that he will. Obvious question. Lots of people don't believe he will. But why does he? 
Lots of questions. They all return to Genesis 3, 4 and Ezekiel 28, 16. He's resurrecting the body because of Genesis 3, 4. It's a rebuke of Genesis 3, 4, Satan's lie. Obviously, the resurrecting of the physical body is evidence of our eternity. Therefore, evidence of his infinity. Again, we all have been given existence, eternity. What is in contest is not our existence. It is our destiny, our destination. What determines our destination? What is it that determines our destination? Our eternal state. Hopefully, you're assembling these pieces. I will add to the question, how is it so that the resurrection of the body proves existence? That is the question of Psalm 10.1. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? Answer those, and you answer, how is it that the resurrection of the body proves existence? Obviously, he stands afar off. He hides himself for the same reason that he resurrects the body. And if it will help you process the answer, consider the reciprocal or the inverse. What would be the Genesis 3-4 accusation from Satan if Jesus did not resurrect the bodies of the dead? What do the bodies of the dead, both living and the second death, the eternal life and the eternal death, what do the bodies of the dead provide? What is Jesus Christ besides the resurrector? He's also the judge, isn't he? So he is bringing these bodies, and where does he where does he put them? Before him, they all go before him. He wants their bodies before him, resurrected. There's a trial, a great white throne. There's the judgment seat of Christ for believers. That's why he's resurrecting people. How is that evidence of his infinity in our existence? Would he be accused of being unwilling if he did not? Would he be accused of being unwilling or forgetful or not able to remember? No repay, no cannot repay, unable, evil? Why wouldn't he do it? That would be, he'd be accused of all of that. He's accused no matter what he does. But he knows that. How does Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 11 and Exodus 32, 1 through 14 apply to all of this? Well, Exodus 32, 1 through 14 is another of the great dramatic theodicies in the Old Testament. It's equal to Genesis 18, 20 through 33. I'm talking about Moses and Abraham here. Both of them appear to argue with God. They are not. They are in the position of the triune Elohim, one of the persons of the us. How does that apply? How does the resurrection of the body, the bodies, nullify the wicked argument that God will not require an account? Psalms 10.13. That the wicked will never be in adversity. They will be in adversity. Psalm 10.16. How does the resurrection of the body destroy their argument? Now, once you have that, add in 17.11 of Leviticus. Because the life is in the blood. If the life is in the blood, what is the theological implication of the resurrection of the body? And with that, we will let you all go back to sleep.